This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to The Peripheral. A lot has happened since my last release. I have a lot of friends that are in areas that were devastated by the hurricanes, whether that be the Gulf, Puerto Rico, and even Dominica. It's hard to see so many people in distress. It's hard for me to understand how when a disaster like this happens, people turn it into an argument. When the hurricanes swept across the Caribbean, not only was Puerto Rico leveled, but all the little islands off the coast down there. Our guest Kayla Jane, who was on the second episode, she lives down there and she's currently spearheading supply and relief efforts for their area of the island because it's almost impossible for them to get support, so they're just having to do it themselves. I've donated myself and I'm gonna donate half of all my proceeds for probably the next couple months to various disaster recovery or victims of shootings just because this month has been insane. Uh, I'm going to put Kayla Jane's donation link in the show notes. I just want to tell anyone that if you have ever thought about donating for a cause, I think I think these causes are worthwhile, and you should reach out. There's so many different catastrophes going on. I, I think that people need to help support the rest of the human race when they're in need. So if you can find it in your heart, reach out to some of these groups and lend a hand if possible. If you don't have the money, see if there's supplies you can send. If they're something local, maybe donate some time. Or if all you have is some extra cash, people need help. And especially on uh, Dominica, that island was leveled. It was in the eye of the hurricane as it passed over. Uh, they were without power, uh, internet, water for weeks. And I still think that it's like on a level of 70 or 80% of the resources have not been restored yet. So they're having to ship things in just to get by. Something that I see from all the people affected is that they're not giving up. They're struggling, they're surviving, but they're fighting. And that's the theme of today's show, is not giving up. And I had a wonderful guest who came on and talked to me about her life, all her trials and tribulations. And I didn't really know what to expect when I got on the call with her. So a little bit of a feeling out process to see what we were going to talk about. But once it got going, it really was astonishing to me that she is that strong and powerful to live the life she did. So without further ado, this is Pamela. My name is Pamela Mwanda. I'm 71 years of age and I live in Adelaide, South Australia. I had a pretty traumatic childhood. So when you were born, it was like what, by around age two or three, your mom was trying to pull you away from your dad? Is that where it all started? Yes, I can remember being pulled away from my father and screaming when, when that was happening. Why did she do this? Because she didn't want to live with my father anymore, and my grandmother was with her, and she was an influence over my mother as well. And they just wanted your dad out of the picture, so... You... They just left him 
-hmm. with having malaria in an old farmhouse in the North Island of New Zealand. So where does your mom take you to live? She takes me to a place called Port Albert where she was on a farm working as a a labourer on a farm. I moved around many times as a small child between birth and five, and it's hard for me to really remember where I lived. Every year you were you were on the go. Yeah. What age do you start remembering, like, when your mother would start having you do chores or start expecting things from you? Really, that's a, that's a hard question for me to try to remember what she expected from me. I just felt like I was, I didn't exist. She ended up getting a new boyfriend? Yes, that's correct. She yeah. She got him when I was around the age of two when she left my father. And and what was his name? His name was Morris. And he wasn't the best replacement for your father, it sounds like. No, he wasn't. He started to abuse me from the age of about two or three. So this man, what did he start doing when you were so young? I remember when I was around about three or four living in a little old house in a place called Wellsford in New Zealand. And I would go across the road and play in a a little park. And he would come over in the bushes and start to touch me. I can't even imagine. I mean, a three or four-year-old is is just, it's sickening. And do you think your mom knew that this was going on? She she told me in the later on in life that she didn't know it was happening, but I have a sneaky suspicion she knew something was going on between the two of us as I got older. So how long was she with this guy? Oh, she lived with him until the day she died, 40-odd years. They started getting into a certain religion together? Yes, when I, when I came about the age of probably 10 to 12 years of age, he became a Seventh-day Adventist. What is and that? And went on... Seventh-day Adventist religion. And what what do they believe, or what is sort of, if you could just summarize that? They believe that the Sabbath is a seventh day is on a Saturday, and they go to church on the Saturday, and they believe in the second coming of Christ. And there was a religious figure, who I can't recall her name, who started the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Ellen White was her name. Okay. And how did this finding of religion change them and and change their interactions with you? It just became that I wasn't allowed to do many things. I was very good at school at um, in sport and running and swimming, and I all of a sudden wasn't allowed to do that anymore because it was on a Saturday. My inspirations of running and swimming, which was something I had my heart set on, I wanted to run in, in the Olympics, and I was very good at running and swimming, and I think that was my way of getting away from the child abuse. You have one outlet in life, and that's physical activity running, and now they've taken that all away because of whatever rule. You can't do it on Saturdays, and you have to go to church. Yes, that's correct. Was the abuse continuing, or was it more just verbal and and emotional abuse now? It was continuing. He would come into my bedroom at night and force himself on me when my mother wasn't around and um, put his hand under the covers, that kind of thing. But when that wasn't happening and everything was in like what you could call ordinary everyday life, I wasn't allowed to have a fringe in my hair. I wasn't allowed to grow my hair long. My mother kept me looking like a boy because she knew that he had an interest in me. You weren't allowed to wear makeup either, right? No, I wasn't allowed to wear makeup or anything that was anything, anything feminine at all. What was the punishments if you did anything wrong? If if I did anything wrong, I would hear a great big argument between the two of them, and then my mother would come in and scold me and tell me off for whatever I was doing wrong. Did you have any friends in school, or were you able to make any friendships at all? No, but I didn't make any schoolhood friendships because I moved every year of my life nearly, so there wasn't any time for me to make friends. How long did this go on for, and when did you? When were you finally able to get out of this situation? Well, I basically got out of the situation when I left home around about, trying to think now, around about 18. 
during your teenage years, though, you're able to get out of the house and, and do other things and work other jobs, right? Yes. I, I left school at 15 and worked in a baker's shop in a place called Papakura, where I worked for a year. But the money that I earned from that was to pay for me to go to a Seventh-day Adventist boarding school in Palmerston North, which was south of Auckland, where I lived. Mm -hmm. In this boarding school, were you able to make friends there or, or any kind of relationships? Yes, I think that's the only recollection I have of a few friends I made there, but I'm no longer connected to any of them. So you, you work at this bakery shop for a bit, that lets you get out, but every single penny you're making is going to schooling. So you ended up working at, uh, call it a pharmacy, but uh, I guess a, a chemist shop, is that what you call it? Uh, I worked in a chemist shop when I came to Australia in 1967, okay. which was a bit later on than okay. this time. Okay. Well, it's, talk, talk about whatever before that happens then, because I'm trying to just fill in the blanks here. Well, I went to boarding school, and while I was at boarding school, I had an attack of gallstones, which had been diagnosed um, prior that I had gallstones and was the youngest in New Zealand to have gallstones at 16. And I had a very bad attack of that when I was at boarding school, and I was rushed to hospital and had my gallstones taken out. A specialist at the hospital in the beginning didn't believe that I had gallstones and almost called me a liar, but... When they opened me up, they found out that I did and they were taken out. And I was then went to live with the principal and his wife to look after me after I had the operation. But my parents didn't even come to see me. It's not likely that somebody so young would have gallstones, but you were in pain. You were having all these issues. Uh, and then after they even show, you do have these and they remove them. Zero sympathy from your mother or your stepfather. That's right. It was very lonely. Sorry. Very scary, sixteen-year-old. Sorry. Yeah, no, no. I I can only imagine. So then you you leave and you you live with the principal. Yes. And and how did that go? They were very nice people, but I just felt very much alone and not really part of anything. I I always remember feeling quite alone as a child, not having any nurturing as a child ought to have. My parents, my mother wasn't a huggy kind of a mother. Uh, she would do practical things for me, but she wasn't into giving me hugs or any of that kind of affection. My mom wasn't either. <laughs> very yeah. zero affection, so physical affection. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So I hear you. So you're growing up, you're, you've already had surgery, you've, you're getting away from your mom and the abusive stepfather. So where do you go from here? Well, I was sexually abused by two members of the Seventh-day Adventist church who started to have sex with me when I was around about the age of 14 and 15. And I used to sneak out from, from my house and go out with them and this would happen. And I think looking back as a child, I was just looking for some sort of affection and not realizing that the affection I was getting was wrong. And these men you were sneaking out to go see, how old were they? They were at least 20 years older than me. They were 20? They would be around 50. They were in their early 30s. Mm -hmm. And you were 14 years old. So this yeah. is absolutely not appropriate for them to be doing this. This is... Not. Yeah. That just led me into what I would call a pretty promiscuous life because the only way I ever got any, any positive reinforcement was when I was in a relationship with some man. And most of these men are twice your age, and it, it sounds like it's just statutory rape. It's it's not an appropriate relationship at all. No. Yeah. No, it wasn't. But it was like the sneaking around of doing it when I worked in the bakery shop. One would come in, and I'd sneak out with him for a lunch break, and he'd take me out in his car and... And then we would have sex in the car somewhere out in the in the bushes. And then I would come back to work as if nothing had happened. You can't let anyone know you're you're doing no. something wrong technically, but they're doing something wrong to you. So it's you're, right. you're stuck. What are you supposed to do here? You can't you can't go to the your boss because then you're in trouble. You can't go to your parents because they're going to discipline you or 
scold you and they were abusers also so you're doing whatever you can to cope with the situation yes that's that's right it was just a like like fight or flight for me to survive i had to do whatever i had to do and when i was having such a terrible time at home to get affection and and positive remarks made to me by these two men made me feel like i was somebody not a nothing i was a sub so this relationship with these two men how are you know how long does this go on for Uh, This goes on for about three or four years. Mm -hmm. And I can remember being in one of the men's, they both were brothers, so they were in it together. Um, I remember being at one of the brothers' house when his wife was actually in hospital having their second child. And here I was in, in his house while she was in hospital. And that leaves a pretty bad taste in my mouth now as I look back. Yeah, I totally understand, especially for men. I, I, can't even fathom how you could look at another man in, in the face anymore and be like, oh, you're not a terrible person because of every single man in your life up until this point has pretty much been a horrible person. That's, that's correct. And I was nursing at that particular hospital. I did a nurse's aid, aid um, course there, which was a maternity hospital. And I was actually working when, when the other wife was having one of her children. And you just have to sit there and not say anything. That's correct, yes. It was also surreal as I look back now and I'm talking to to you and I'm talking about it for the first time in many years. As I'm speaking to you, my head space is going in all directions because I can't really believe what I'm telling you because it all sounds so surreal. Yeah, I when I was reading it, I... I just was shaking my head and and just thinking, how could this happen? How could just one after another after another? It's terrible. I I wish that one man or woman came into your life that was protective of you and wanted to do right. Also, when I was 18, my stepfather's brother raped me and that was a terrific experience. Um, this particular uncle offered to take me on a holiday with his wife and his son. And I went for a holiday in Christchurch, New Zealand. And in um, People's Palace, I met my first husband, Terry, who um, was on holidays from Australia. But when the holiday was over, my uncle wanted me to go back to the farm with him and his son, and unbeknownst to me, he was splitting up from his wife. So I was about 17 or 18 then, I think, and so I went, and in the middle of the night, I found him in my bedroom on top of me, and the rest is history, so to speak. And after he went out of the room, I remember pushing a great big wardrobe against the door, and trying to figure a way I could get out of there. So in the morning you get you leave and they act like nothing happened? Yes, and then the, the guy that was working on the farm for my uncle, I eventually told him what was happening and he very kindly, in a way, got me out of there, but he took me to a hotel and also then had his way with me. <sighs> So he. So everybody, everybody I turned to for help just used and abused me. Yeah. So. And how... I really ha- had nowhere to go. So your first husband, Terry. Yes. How did this marriage go? Well, it didn't go very good because, um, firstly, my parents wouldn't come to the wedding because he wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. And I have a very good friend called Maureen, who I'm still friends with today. She's very ill in Wanganui, New Zealand. She became probably the first person that came into my life to stick up for me. And she and her husband also looked after me. But then, (laughs) gee, I can't believe what I'm going to say next. But when I was living with her, her husband also came into my bedroom and abused me. And how old were you at that time? I was around about 18 or 19, about 19. Mm-hmm. It's just hard to fathom every single man you're coming into contact with is is behaving this way, is attacking you. And yes. So your your husband, he, 
he wasn't he seemed like kind of a con man yes he was he I, unbeknownst to me he was on the run from the police in australia and had come over to new zealand to get away from the police but i didn't know that and i think i saw him as a, a reason to get away from everything that i had been through and be with somebody i thought was a nice person to come over to australia that's how i got to be in australia in the first place my friend Maureen, she prepared the wedding and gave me a beautiful wedding, and we had a nice wedding. Yeah, yeah. But without your parents, without loved ones, just your... You know, yeah. no loved ones there at all. Mm -hmm. With your husband, where did you guys live, and what did you do? We lived in a little small house that a step-auntie rented out to us, and I worked in a printing factory, and my husband worked in a shoe. He was a shoemaker, so he worked making shoes, and we were quite happy for a few months, and then suddenly his sister-in-law in Australia died giving birth to her second child, and my husband, Terry, wanted to come back to New Zealand, mm. no, go back to Australia, sorry, so that's how I, come, I went to live in Australia. And how long did this marriage last? This marriage lasted only about four years because when we got to Australia and I found out that he was on the run from the police because we kept changing addresses all the time and I couldn't understand why we were moving all the time. He, he took off one day and didn't come back. He just disappeared. And I was all on my own in Australia, not knowing anyone except my mother-in-law, who I wasn't all that close to. And I ended up um, taking an overdose and ended up in a hospital, a mental psychiatric hospital in Sydney. And I had no one to come and look, look after me. I had no family. I had no one. I was just on my own. and. The psychologist there who knew this pretended that he had a long-lost uh, relative to get me out of that place, and he also medicated me and abused me in his office in this particular hospital, and then he got me out of the hospital and put me up in a, a hotel in King's Cross. So this is your, your doctor, your therapist, and yes. he's now an abuser, and he's put you up in a in a hotel. He's somehow got you discharged from this hospital and has you in a hotel room where he takes care of you now. That's right. I was like his his mistress. He was a married man. He was a good 30 years older than me. He was a big Greek, Greek guy, and he owned a chemist shop in King's Cross. So after I was in the hotel for a while, he put me in an apartment in King's Cross, and you had to have two keys to get into the apartment so I sort of felt quite safe there for a while. And what's a chemist shop? Is it kind of like a pharmacy? Yes, it's a pharmacy. Okay. Pharmacy. And that's where I being from New Zealand and being very naive, I didn't understand what prostitutes were or that kind of thing. And of course they would come into the shop and purchase things and then they would say to this guy whose name was John, Oh, I'll pay you back in a moment when I've cracked it and they used all sorts of words and things that I didn't understand. But I soon found out that they were prostitutes and they were going to have a customer and they would come back and pay for whatever they'd bought from the chemist. After they got paid for the, the trip. That's, yeah, that's right, yes. Yeah. And you were never, like, you, you, they didn't mess with you at all, though. You just worked there. No, I didn't get into prostitution. I was just his mistress, mm -hmm. and he just anything that I wanted, he would buy for me. Did you get paid for working at the shop? No, just I just got whatever I wanted. If I we were walking down the street and I looked at a dress and thought it would look nice, he would buy it for me. He didn't give me wages or anything like that. I was just his mischief living off him. Yeah. So you had a hotel room and he bought you stuff, but you really didn't have much of a say in the matter because you had nowhere else to go. That's correct. I was all alone. And um, he used to have a, a man that used to come into the shop. And I can still remember what this man looks like. And he would come into the shop and they would huddle up together. And then this guy would go out. And this kept happening quite often. And I soon found out that he was what you call a hit man because he would say, I've got a job to do and I'll be back in a few weeks' time. And, and then he would go away and he would come back. And he just noticed that while I was around that this guy, John, was quite happy. And obviously he got whatever he wanted from him, which was drugs. I 
then ended up one day waking up in my my apartment I was in at this point in time with this guy with a gun to my head, wanting to know if he could have the keys to the, the drug cupboard. And I said, I didn't have the keys. And I convinced him that, no, I didn't have the keys to the drug cupboard at all, that John had the keys for that. So he left me alone. And on a second occasion, he came into the shop when he saw John walking up the road and told me that if I made John unhappy or disappointed him, he would get my husband. So he knew you were, you had a husband and he's threatening, yes. yeah, and he's threatening to kill him. Yeah. If you make this man unhappy who you're. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. So I was stuck in a rock in a hard place as I'm talking to you now. <sighs> this all sounds so surreal because I haven't talked about this so openly for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And as I'm talking about it, it just sounds so surreal to me. It's it's crazy. I mean, it's it's just so... I've never heard a, a story like this where everywhere you turn, it's it's something that's trying to control you. It's a, it's a man who's trying to get something from you or, or abuse you. I, I just, I can't even fa- imagine, like, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm at a loss for words when, when I was reading it. I, I didn't know what to say. And I just thought, well, I'll just get her to tell the story because it, it speaks for itself. doesn't need to be a lot of commentary here because it's, it's so horrible on its own. This is why I have never formed very good relationships with men because I had no role model in my life to know how to behave or how to act. All I learned was if I got compliments about how I looked, that would make me feel good. And that seemed to be the only thing that I got any praise for. I never got any praise for anything else in my life. Yeah. This is the only attention you get. So you're kind of trained to feel that this is the only type of emotion or affection that's normal when it's very abnormal. And having left school at 15, I didn't have an education, so I never had a a good education to be able to better myself or to know even how to better myself. I just knew I could work and I could get a job to bring in the money when I had to, and I seemed to find that I was able to do that in all of my life. I've been able to get myself work and pay my way. No, and and thank God for that, because you were able to take care of yourself enough to remove yourself from some of these bad situations, but other people would get you into other bad situations, so it was hard to escape. That's right, exactly. Eventually, in 1969, I remember that, because when the man landed on the moon, so I have recollections of, in 1969, this guy, this hitman guy, told me that my husband and his friend were on the run between a particular place I can't recall in Western Australia and that the police were after him. Uh, I, I got pretty upset and told John, the chemist man, the psychologist, that I wanted to go to Adelaide to see my husband who was then put in jail. Do you remember what he was uh, in jail for exactly? or was Yeah, it... fraud. Did he allow you to uh, go? Yeah, well, he did eventually. He allowed me to go. I was pretty scared because every time once I got to Adelaide, I looked out like I was looking behind my shoulder all the time for a long time, scared that this other guy who also was called John was going to come and get me. His, his hitman friend, yeah. Yeah. Were you planning on going back to John or were you thinking that this was your escape? I was thinking this was my escape. Yeah. And um, I had no intentions of going back to John, the big guy, the psychologist man. And about six months later, I heard that he had had a heart attack and died. So you were free, free and clear. Yeah. 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 Wow. That made a big impact on me. But what I've been telling you this morning about my life, I don't think I ever told my husband about this. Well, I mean, it to myself. Yeah. Did he end up getting out of jail and and you being with him again? Yes, I ended up getting a job running a pharmaceutical warehouse um, and I worked there for about a year while he was in jail Mm -hmm. and got a flat together and got furniture together. And when he got out of jail, he came to live with me. 
but it wasn't long, six months down the track, he wasn't getting work and I was working, bringing in the money. And then I found out that he was having an affair with another woman and she was going to give birth to his child. So that ended that relationship. It's just unbelievable. I mean, he, he wasn't, you know, in the beginning, he wasn't the best guy, but at least he didn't seem to be abusive and horrible like everybody else. But then in the end, he betrays you also. Yes, he didn't stick up for me one little bit. Even to this day, he will not admit what he's done, what he did to hurt me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever remarry after that? Yes, I've been married five times, mm -hmm. which is not really something I'm proud of. I will, in a roundabout way, make jokes about it when I'm out with people or something like that. But when I think back of it, I guess I married because it was inbred in me that you didn't live with somebody, you had to get married. And I guess that's why that happened. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you are you were raised by very strict parents. And if you're not married, then you're, you're living in sin and you're doing something wrong in the eyes of God. So this is what you do. But you're getting married to people that, if you've been married five times, it sounds like they're not exactly the right people for you and you're not right for each other so then you have to leave them and start all over again that's right and i think it was just that i was always looking for somebody to really care for me and to protect me and to understand me but i think in hindsight as i look back i was pretty mixed up myself in all that i'd been to up to the age of around about 21 at this point in time that mm -hmm. i really had no radar or anything to allow me to know what was right or what was wrong in any relationship yeah yeah because up until this point you've only had bad horrible things and you've never seen good yeah that's correct and i, I think that as I went through the very rela relationships that I went through, that I was always looking for that father figure that I always wanted my biological father to come and find me and, and he would take me away from all this horrible stuff. Yeah. But that never happened. Did you ever find out what happened to your biological father? I did a lot of searching over the years and I did find out that he had remarried and that he was living in a place called Wellington, but he had died in 1962 and I was about two years too late in finding him. And he's had a heart attack at the age of 55 That's and had died in his, his garden. So mm. he, he was a very sick man coming back from World War II mm. with malaria and other um, post-traumatic stress disorder that he wasn't a very well man. It's terrible. And it was so close of a time frame. Yeah, that's correct. I ended up finding his sister mm -hmm. who was turning 80, and I w that was in 1997, and I went to New Zealand and met her, and she just held my hand and said the last time she'd seen me was I was two years of age and a little nighty was the last time she'd seen me. That was quite a cathartic experience for me to actually meet my father's sister and to actually be able to sit and talk with her and we lay in bed together and chatted away like old-time friends and that was very nurturing and very um, healing for me. Yeah and how old were you at that point? 1957 so I was about 50. Okay yeah. 1997 sorry yeah. I was about 50. <laughs> I, I thought you've meant that so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Getting my dates correct. <laughs> you're fine. You're fine. So through your life now, you're in and out of, of relationships, but you're able to take care of yourself. You're self-sustaining. You have jobs, and you're not having to rely on other people now like you did when you were younger. I think that's why, because of being an abused child, that as you get older and after I'd found out that five marriages weren't working for me as far as men were concerned, that the best place to be was to be by myself where I could choose what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do, that as I've got older, I'm, I'm able to do that now um, more so. And it's also to be able to tell other women who out there who have been abused and sexually abused by men that they can come out of it the other side stronger and still have some control over their life. Absolutely. You're doing exactly what you should be doing. I wish you could have come to that sooner in life, but it, it takes time to figure it out. And 
We have so many things that we're told as children and, and young adults that we think are what you're supposed to do. They're hard habits to break. Yes, I, I do think that when stories come out up about sexual abuse for children in the media, they focus on what's happening right now, but I don't think they ever take a story to how it affects older women who are still, till the day they die, will always remember those horrible times they experienced as children. And as much as you try to forgive in order to let it go and live a healthy life, you still have at the back of your mind when you hear these stories, they still make an impact on you and you you can feel the bit of anger or, or disappointment come up in yourself because of what you've experienced as a child. Yeah, because most people will only think about that moment. It's life-altering for for victims and you're telling exactly how you, I mean, I'm I'm applauding you because I think you did way better than what life had dealt you. I think you you came out of this in a way better way than most people would have for what horrible things had happened. And I applaud yeah. you for that, you know? It's it's not an easy or simple task to overcome all of these things. Yeah, that's why I suffer with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety and depression, which I struggle with, but I'm under a good therapist who has me on medication for that, which I'm very thankful for, and that keeps me stable. But the post-traumatic stress disorder is something that kicks in occasionally when you least expect it, and you can find yourself having a panic or anxiety attack when you least expect. And that makes me tend to want to stay home more these days than go out anywhere. Yeah, yeah. You get to cuddle with your dogs and do do whatever you want. And you don't have to worry about <laughs> what's what's going to happen on the outside world and if anything's going to bother you or if, or if you're not going to want to handle a situation that you never expected to be in. Yeah, that's why I'm very thankful that I have a government house to live in for the rest of my life. I have food in my belly. I have a roof over my head. I have my lovely animals and I can basically choose to do what I want to do or not want to do. And that is probably the first time in my life that I've been able to do that. Yeah. It's nice that you're able to have some assistance there and you're not having to keep fighting on your own and then try to figure out retirement when you were never really given an opportunity from the, you know, the, the start gate to ever really come out ahead. No, I never came out, you know, owning anything. I owned a, a house, but that was taken away from me in one of my marriages when I, we had to go bankrupt. So I lost the house that I did have. So Material things now don't mean a lot to me as long as I've got food in my belly, a roof over my head, and I'm warm when it's cold and cool when it's hot, yeah. etc. That means more to me than all the money in the world. Yeah. Happiness can be simple. <laughs> that's... Yes. That's why I run a group on the internet called 5AA Listeners with Disabilities. That's a group that like listening to a particular radio station called 5AA here in Adelaide. But this is a group that I... I run, been running since 2011, and it's become a bit of a social group now. So that once a month I get out and we go to the casino where it's very cheap to get a nice meal. We don't gamble, but we just meet there. Yeah. So once a month I get out for a social get together, and I've met some really nice friends in that group. So that's helped me get away from being like a hermit and not going anywhere to going out and socializing. Absolutely. I was going to say, I hope you're not home every day doing nothing. And it sounds like you are doing a lot. You're doing a lot with your time. And you're very humble with uh, <laughs> saying what makes you happy and not. Because I, I work from home a lot now. And I I have to get out of my house because I, I just feel like I've become antisocial, you know. Yes, well, I'm pretty antisocial. I, I, I'm homebound most of the time because I have chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, and especially in the wintertime. I'm basically in bed all the time unless I'm going out, and I tend to do everything in one day. If I'm going out to do shopping or bits and pieces, I do it all in that one day so I don't have to go out every day mm. as it's just too much for me to get myself ready to get up and get in the car and go out. That I just tend to do everything in one day. Yeah. No, I don't blame you. I mean, that's how I, that's how I do it too. I don't want to keep going out. <laughs> yes. 
it's um it's it's easier that way and um um it's taking me away from the anxiety of having social phobia and mixing with people because i have to try and explain to these friends that i've made in the last two years that I can't just drop everything and run out for a cup of coffee like they can with each other. I have to pace myself and take my time in doing those kind of things. I used to be very spontaneous, up and about, racing around, doing everything, fight to survive, to get to work, to earn enough money, to bring up my my son on, on my own and do all of that, that suddenly now I just don't have the energy for all of that. And you shouldn't have to. You're doing exactly what you want to do, and you shouldn't have to run around. And if they want to hang out with you, they got to understand where you're coming from and yeah. what you need. I'm not going to drop everything and run out either. I, it's, it's, it's just not going to happen anymore. But you're not disappointing them either. You're setting an expectation of, you know, we'll, we'll make a plan for this instead of them constantly asking you and you constantly turning them down, you know? So I think that's healthy. It's teaching me to be able to explain it to them so that they do understand because when I started the group it was mainly my idea was for people that were bed bound and homebound to be in contact with each other but it started to become a social group people were wanting to meet other people in the group so it became a social group which was not my intention in the beginning but in the, in the same way it has helped me become this time last year I was probably very much a hermit and not going out at all to now I know I'm going out once a month and I look forward to that going out once a month and being with my friends and they are in contact with me on on the computer in between those times that's good that sounds great actually that's all that I, I hope for like it's mm-hmm. just this is my life now at the moment being more in control of my my own self. Absolutely. And it sounds like you're you're successful at this and trying not to be a people pleaser, which is what I tended to do, be all my life was try to please people all the time and try <laughs> to do what they wanted me to do. I I'm still in that mode where I try to please everybody, so I'll, I'll take a page out of your book here. <laughs> <laughs> So was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I mean, I know that your group turned into a more of a social group, and I'll, I'll say that everything that I've created, whether it be my podcast or jobs I've had in the past, whatever, they've always turned into something else that I never imagined and I never envisioned them, them to be. And it's usually always better than my expectations, which is a good thing. So it sounds like it's yeah. similar. <laughs> I just think that if anybody who who reads my story or hears my story can just take from it that no matter what you go through in life, that you can you can come out the other side. How you do that, I really don't understand. Just my sense of uh, survival that I managed to always come out the other side and always better than what I thought, as you said, that something good is always going to happen. You don't know what it is, but something good will happen. And that was my philosophy. I had many downtimes over the years where I've been very depressed and wanted to end my life, but I could never come to that because my own biological brother in 1995 committed suicide and I found him. So I soon learned that that wasn't the answer to, to opting out of life. Yeah. And I'm so happy that you're, you're here to tell your story and, and you're going strong too which which is yeah. just amazing, amazing to hear. And I get told that I don't look my age and I had my um, lounge cleaned a couple of days ago and this man came in to clean my lounge and he started to talk to me and he thought I was only 50, so he made my day. <laughs> exactly. So when you least expect, you're just getting your lounge cleaned and somebody comes in and pays you a compliment and makes your day and you think, well, I'm not so bad after all. I might be 71, but I still got a heart of a 20-year-old. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> even even with everything you've been through, you're you're still you're still able to laugh. You're still able to enjoy your life and and make other people enjoy their lives too. It sounds like I love to visit an old friend called Doris, who's in a nursing home, and I try to visit her every fortnight. And I go down there, and I can tell you, me visiting nursing homes are a real experience because they are just like school children there. They have bullies, and they have they have all sorts of interactions with each other. 
Isn't that weird how you, you think we're, we grow up into adults and we won't have to deal with this crap anymore, but no, it's the same pecking order that we had in high school. And that's what it's like in nursing homes. They all bicker amongst each other and they talk about each other. It's really quite funny when you hear the stories. Yeah. <laughs> These 70 and 80-year-old people having childish fights. It's it's ridiculous. My 88-year-old 80, friend has even got a crush on an old guy in there and her face lights up when she talks about him. <laughs> it makes a chuckle inside. Does she talk to him? Yeah, she does. And the other woman get jealous of her, <laughs> she tells me. It's hilarious. So it comes down full circle. Yes. Yes, it does. That's great. Have you listened to some of my ep- podcasts and episodes? Have you been able to? Yes, I've been listening to your stories, yeah, and I really enjoy them. Awesome. Well, that's good. I'm glad you're able to get, get to them because it's... I mean, there's there's so many podcasts and stories out there that I think it's... I think it's just the best escapism for people to just sit back and and hear somebody else's story, and you don't have to think about yours anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's good too. It's better on your eyes. You don't have to focus on the TV. You can just lay and listen to a podcast, which is really good because sometimes I get really tired mm-hmm. with my chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, that I just have to lay there without any stimulation except listen to the radio. So it's kind of mm-hmm. nice to listen to a podcast and to re- hear a real story. I tend to be a person that if I read anything, I'd rather read an autobiography about real people than fiction. I'm not into fic- fictional stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm a reality freak. <laughs> I like my reality TV. <laughs> I'm the same way, and I, I'm always doing something because I'm still on the run doing things every day, so I can just sit there and listen while I'm doing stuff, and then whatever my task may be doesn't seem quite as bad because I have a nice story or something that's distracting me from whatever the menial tasks I'm doing that day might be. <laughs> be yeah, very good distraction for sure. Yeah. I really was very pleased to have, um, for Ben to put me on to you and to yeah. for you to read my story because it took me about three years to write that story and it's not very good grammar because I never had an education but it was very healing for me to get that story out of myself uh-huh. and onto something that I now feel more relieved that I've done it. Oh absolutely and I, I think it was great and yeah, I'll tell you right now when I write something an email or or a blog post or anything your your grammar is far better than mine. <laughs> so. <laughs> I don't know so much, but I just I know that educated people would probably pick it to pieces. So I'm quite well aware that my writing skills and grammar are not the best. And I have to learn not to put myself down about that, too. Yeah, I I don't I, you know, I think they call them grammar Nazis. Uh, I prefer to know what your message is and not pick it apart. I, I only care about what what I'm reading and the content and I don't care how good or bad it's put together <laughs> it's not something i will ever judge somebody yeah on. you took the time to write i it. think that yeah i think because i found some educated people are very easily to put you down when you don't do something that's that's good uh, as as they are and um that that makes me feel very inferior so i try to not mix with those kinds of people yeah i mean you took the time to write it you took the time to put it out there what are they doing you know <laughs> it, it was very cleansing it was very cleansing it was like over the three years it was I must get the story out I must get it done and I'd put it away because it would get all too hard and too painful for me to talk about then I'd start again and this went on for about three years till I finally finished it and I just felt so relieved that I was able to get my story out and that now it, it's it gave me a sense of relief I think it I think it does and I think even talking to somebody and just getting it out there is is all a lot of people need to do it's like a knife in your back and and it's pulling the knife out it's this weight on your shoulders and you're you're allowed to take some of that weight off it's very cathartic to do this yeah it's great very healing as well Mm -hmm. i'm very happy to be able to explain myself to you oh yeah and there's I just wanted you to tell your story. And I, even though in the beginning I was like, oh, I was looking for medical stuff. And you're like, that's not what it's about. I'm like, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> I want to hear your story regardless. <laughs> it's like, Well, I can tell you that 
that chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia come from trauma. It's been stated that many people who face trauma can end up with these kind of immune illnesses. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that's where my chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia come from. So I I just have to live with that. And I'm on pain meds, which keeps the fibromyalgia in a good place. So I'm not in too much pain. Mm -hmm. And I just don't overdo do it in my energy area. So the chronic fatigue stays in a place I can manage. Yeah. But it's taken me a long, long time to learn this. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's different. And there's no right answer. It's just you knowing your own body and knowing what works for you. That's right. Just a day-by-day, hour-by-hour thing. And one minute you can be rolling around the bed in absolute pain, and then an hour later you're lying there feeling quite comfortable. So you're up and down all the time like that, which is very frustrating at times. Yeah, I can't even imagine. Well, Pamela, is there any any questions you had for me or anything else? (laughs) No, I've sort of got to a point where I I don't know what to say now because (laughs) we've touched on the earlier years of my life, but we haven't touched on a lot of in-betweens, but that's okay. I think I got the message out about how sexual abuse or abuse by men to women, Mm. um, or even if it's the other way around, whatever abuse you've been through as a child affects your whole life. And I think till the day you die, you will live with that abuse as much as therapy you may go through or as much talking about it um, anytime you hear about some sort of abuse um, it's still inside you puts a knot in your stomach but you always remember what you went through yeah absolutely and it's always it's always with you but we can just try to work through it and and move on from it but it's always going to be there and it's always going to rear its ugly head (laughs) yeah because yeah. as a person, I don't have any family, so I don't have children or grandchildren coming and going from my house. So when it's Mother's Day or Christmas or things like that, you can get a bit lonely for me because I don't have that interaction that most women my age have. Mm-hmm. But I have friends who keep in contact with me and understand I've got friendships with um, uh, three women I've known for 40 years who I'm still friends with. So they're the longest friendships I've had although I don't have any from my childhood at all. It sounds like you didn't have much of a childhood, so it's understandable. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Dustin, and all the best to you and your future and what you're doing yourself. I appreciate all that you're doing. You're doing a great job. Okay. Thank you so much to you too. And and you're doing, you're a wonderful person for everything you do. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Thank you, Justin. All right. Bye for now. Bye for now. Have a good one. I'm going to put a call out there for Halloween. I'd like to do some scary stories. I've already covered ghost stories last Halloween. So this year, let's do something that just scared the crap out of you. So any situation where you feared for your life, an incident made you believe that you were going to die. I've had my own. I know that there's 100 people out there that have had crazy situations happen to him so please email me at the peripheral podcast at gmail or reach out to me on any social media i like it if you email but i'm not gonna dissuade any other means of communication you guys have a good one i love you all